Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, Marcus and Will of Donnelly Diamond Architects are interviewed by Aoife Donnelly. Aoife runs the first year in the undergraduate here in architecture and also runs a unit in second year and is a practicing architect in her own right. Marcus and Will join us from Dublin where they both teach in UCD in number of years across the school and have their own practice. In this interview, Aoife, Marcus and Will talk about many things from uh, the concerns at the heart of Donny Dunn's practice to teaching and the relationship between practice and teaching. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm joined here by Marcus and Will of Donny Diamond. Is that that's correct? Mm-hmm. I pronounce it, Jason. Um, firstly, welcome to Kingston School of Art, and Thanks. thank you for coming. Um, I'm looking forward to your lecture later on. And the the format that we do really is a sort of an informal conversation ahead of the lecture, really, and uh, it goes out in the form of a podcast part of the registry series. Um, and I'm one of the teaching staff here on an architect mm-hmm. and schools in Dublin as well, actually, mm-hmm. so all of that in common. It should be good to hear a little bit about your background and story until now. Did you study in Dublin as well? Or? Yeah, we both studied in Dublin, but we also studied in London as a... Well, we both studied in Dublin as undergraduates, but Will studied in London until the end of third year. Mm. So I moved from South Bank Poly, as was then, um, and so I moved into fourth year in Dublin. In UCD? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've been there ever since, so it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> No return. <laughs> Opposite to my journey in a sense. But, um, and you both went on to work for O'Donnell and Toomey. Is that where you met? Or, mm, no, I I had worked for O'Donnell and Toomey on a year out after a third year. And then moonlight at the odd time during college, making models and stuff like that. Will reminded me the other day that in my fourth year I wasn't around very much the first few weeks because <laughs> yeah. I was making a model. Yeah. Well, but anyway, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, a competition in, in Venice. But when I started in fourth year. Yeah. Yeah. There were people talking about Marcus and he wasn't there. Um, he was in the um, final throws of uh, um, the Venice Gateway competition. Or, I'm not sure what it's yeah, called. For, it the, for Piazza di Roma. That's right. Uh-huh. Um, that was my excuse for not being in college, but I don't know whether that was true. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Will only reminded Fierce me of that the other day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Excellent. Um, and how critical did you also work in O'Donnell to me? I did, yeah, yes, for yeah. many years actually. Um, right. And uh, pretty soon after leaving UCD, I joined um, after a short stint um, with Shane O'Toole and Michael Kelly. Um, and uh, so I was there, I was with them for 10, 11 years. Right. Um, okay. As an associate for a while. And um, so was that spanned the period from where computers started coming into, into the office. And um, when I started there, we were working on Blackwood Golf Centre, which was a 
a little project that came out of a competition in the north of Ireland. When I left, um, the Glucksman Gallery was starting on site, so it was, it was quite a fan, I suppose, in their career. And an increase in scale of the practice and so on, correspondingly? Yeah, yeah. so there were just four of us when we started, and then probably ten or so when we left. I don't know if you right. um, uh, so I worked particularly on um, around the school project mm -hmm. and on the Letterfrack Furniture College. Yeah, wonderful projects. Which were obviously big things for me and quite formative, I suppose. Well, this is what yeah. I was going to ask, was how formative and critical that period was in terms of influencing your own practice um, going forward. And Was it then really that your practice was born when you encountered mm. Well, I suppose there was a note, in a way, I guess for anyone passing through UCD, that John and Sheila have had a kind of critical influence. And in a way, they and their peers also in Group 91 and so on demonstrated to all of us, I suppose, the potential for, I guess, a critical practice. Yeah. Um, in a way, our probably interests as a practice overlap and in a way, to some degree, predate the O'Donnell and Toomey thing in the sense that we were students together mm -hmm. and probably shared interests. And then I would have been away in New York after I graduated for three years working variously on building sites and then ultimately in and out with architects and so on. But when I came back, shortly after, well, a couple of years after I came back, I started working on my own because I had a couple of projects. And Will and I had also been asked by Dublin City Council, actually, to look at urban space projects within the Liberties, okay. where we both live. And I had lived since I came to college in 1986. And Will lives above a shop on Francis Street in the Liberties mm -hmm. with his family. So... We were kind of asked as, I guess, young architects. We didn't have a practice, but we were asked as kind of people who were embedded in the liberties to some degree right. to look at some of these spaces. So that actually, in a way, and that was Margaret Stevenson who was working in Dublin City Council at the time. She kind of, it wasn't an arranged marriage, but she sort of made that invitation to us. Would we like to look at these spaces and so on? So we looked at Weaver Square and that, that really was the first thing I think that we did together, but we didn't have a practice. But it was a kind of reintroduction to one another. I mean, obviously, we since I came back to New York, Will and Susan had kind of taken me in and fed me when I was back at first and so on. So there was a kind of a social thing. And then there was this kind of invitation that we looked at a shared world, which was the place that we were living in to some degree. And I guess found that there were compatibilities as well in the way that we would think about things. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of different overlapping, meshing things. And, and then obviously we have the kind of common... Um, experience of how John and Sheila worked and I suppose developed their practice as mm -hmm. well. I mean, Will obviously much more so than I, um, in that I was just there as a student briefly. And the steps then that you took to forming your practice, so the invitation from my students then, mm -hmm. and were there other critical characters during that time or during your studies or initial period after graduation, that kind of uh, some of the moments that informed really. Um, I suppose one thing was well, Marcus mentioned that he worked um, as a as a joiner or builder and cabinet maker maybe in New York. I had had a um, previous experience in London actually 
um, before starting at South Bank of working in the building for a couple of years and working I suppose with all trades at a fairly basic level but nevertheless with my hands dirty so I think I definitely think that we both brought this kind of shared interest in making yeah. as the kind of cornerstone to mm-hmm. approach to architecture and to be clear, I wasn't a cabinet maker in New York. I was a sheep, what they call an Erlingus carpenter who fixes sheep rock to the wall. But I didn't know, but I, you know, it's true. And actually in that world in New York, it was quite interesting because in a sense, there was to some degree a little bit graduating from architecture and wondering whether I, not whether I wanted to do it, but how I wanted to do it and kind of ambition to work in certain places in New York, but maybe not pursuing that and finding other things that distracted me in a way. And actually... Probably actually funny, Will will be meeting him in a couple of days, but Stash Saksevsky in New York, who was in our class as well, he had gone back to, he'd gone to New York on a year out, he'd gone there, he worked with a guy called Mike Schmidt, and it was a kind of world where uh, Stash came back to New York, it was post-recession, or just coming out of a recession, and he basically bought tools being Stash, and when I arrived over, he had set up this job or got this job through Mike, which he'd sort of designed, and basically we went to the garment district and built out a huge loft space on the seventh floor for this guy, Paul Roden, and it was kind of a huge garment warehouse thing. Yeah, and I just got it, you know, so in a way, and then a bunch of other people actually from UCD who were trained in tools such as um, Jerry McCormack and so on came over to New York later. So I got wrapped up then with building with them. So... I guess there's a sort of thing of maybe also a shared willingness, maybe sometimes to say, well, is there a kind of diversionary way around um, finding out how to do things and so on? And I would have even built things as a teenager before I came to college, even though I was thought of as academic, not a building type of person. But in a way, I come, we both, I think, come out of that mm-hmm. sense of putting those <clears throat> together and thinking about it. Yeah. So that's definitely, and actually, funnily enough, so these things are very contingent in a way, and they're actually, yeah, well, everyone knows Will's very careful with words and doesn't use them too much, and I talk too much. So there's a nice thing that in making things, actually, I probably shut up and we talk through things to some degree. And actually, when we set up the practice, we didn't really set it up. Well, one was the space that Will and Susan have at the bottom of their house, the shop front. So it's the thing, of, well, would I rent it? Because I was setting up practice. And then it was, well, actually in a way actually in a pragmatic way we said well actually we've done something together already that's worked there are some things we could share in terms of things i'd started things that will had offers of work to start so we kind of said well let's put them together and then we spent the first six months of the practice actually laying a woodblock floor to a very particular (laughs) bond on the floor and in Francis Street. Yeah, in Francis Street. And in a way, drawing it out on the back of sheets of very expensive plywood that we bought that we couldn't really afford. And uh, so lining, you know, so in a way, the first thing we really did together in that sense, or the next thing we really did together was this. And that's actually, I think, an interesting bond that there is actually a thing of having kind of pushed and pulled and kind of, you know, made together. Made together. And in a way, it was a negotiated thing. It wasn't something that was all drawn to so so there's a kind of interesting mm. practice comes out of that as well I think yeah yeah there, I mean there are lots of questions around process that I, I want to get to which connect with some of the things that you mentioned there but, um 
Resilience, that's one thing I wanted to ask. So your practice has stayed tough economic times in Dublin and the, there's an upturn again now. Mm. Have you mechanisms really that allowed you to survive through those times? Or have you looked further afield or outwards and focused on the teaching more? Or? Teaching certainly was a, was a kind of lifeline for some of that period, certainly. Mm-hmm. And... It's been something that we've always enjoyed and it's been an important part of our work, not only in itself, but also in terms of informing mm-hmm. and creating what we do. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we were, in some ways we were probably fortunate when the recession started that we had probably taken on smaller work. So we had a, to some degree, we didn't go off an edge, we hadn't grown very much. I mean, mm-hmm. we were at a cusp of things, but, but, but in a way... We got a few years into the recession without being, you know, and in some ways that probably for other other reasons too was to was good then, but possibly to our detriment in the sense that we probably came out of the recession later, not having. Do you know what I mean? In a way, anyway. But that's that's it. Mm-hmm. And how? Did, yeah. And we really just survived, really. I guess by, I guess people like Liz Burns and Sinjin Walsh working with us and you know working incredibly hard for modest reward mm-hmm. and so on so as as we probably went in a way we, we, we were quite defensive in a sense in i don't mean that in a defensive sense but in a way yeah we just tightened down and in a way probably too much we probably should have been more i'm not sure what we should have been more but in some ways it is interesting how it has affected people and people's practices and so on yeah yeah and i mean it'll come up in the lecture in a way it did for other people they became very involved with, and in a good way, uh, reaching out in a sense, or maybe doing alternative things and so on. And we probably didn't really grasp that opportunity, but to some degree, we maybe personally weren't. It wouldn't have been able to in some ways. I mean, we both probably had quite a lot of family obligations and so on. So in a sense, we just knuckled yeah. down in a way. But I do see, I can see where other people did other things in an interesting way that uh, the recession has kind of opened up interesting debates, which may be being closed again by boom in Ireland again, yes. but, but, but that there were interesting things that came out, which of which I would say we weren't in a public way a part of. But some of the stuff we'll show this evening are actually, do, do actually tell stories about where projects go off the rails mm-hmm. in the interesting ways, or not off the rails, but, but get diverted by things that in those situations you find, well, actually... What will we do about this or that? I think we've also been incredibly lucky with having mm. good clients. So, that, you know, the few jobs that we did have that were always um, keeping things ticking over, they didn't necessarily, it wasn't that they went smoothly, but they had committed clients who were prepared to let us at it and let us see ideas through mm-hmm. in a quite a complete way within the terms of the scale of their project. And in that way, one thing led to another, and there was a. Sometimes it was only a trickle, but there were there were a series of people who were keen to make something really considered and something well at last. Supported in the yeah. sense of, of the way you choose to practice. Did you find there was more of an opportunity for reflection with the kind of slowdown in the sense of the pace? Of things, um... it should have been. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in some ways, 
you well that was for you six months i mean i i did do a thing where i did a hard to describe time of masters which was partly related to practice and it didn't get i mean how far it got in terms of reflection on practice i'm not really sure but in some ways they're probably not in a very studied way i think reflection but there are probably projects which slowed down and again went in a particular way because of the nature of the builder you had and the way everybody was just thinking well if we can get it done with these resources in this way then that'll be so so i think that did create so to some degree some reflection because you're sort of saying well actually yeah for example the job the we one of the jobs that we talk about where in a way one was getting closer not to being the contractor oneself but getting one's hands in much more about how things were made or where they came from and who made them you know as so as opposed to handing over very very detailed yes. drawings there was in a way much more engagement directly with uh, tradespeople and even back to source of where the wood's coming from who's cutting it all of these things yeah. and that space doesn't happen in a world where people are pressing, pressing, pressing for something to be done yes. in a hurry. And it was it was interesting because in a way time didn't go out the window, but it was interesting. So those people who were pursuing a project maybe had a different Agenda, different time frame in mind. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of clients or <clears throat> the best collaborations that you've kind of come upon, um, so you, you did a house for... The musician are for musical instruments and you did the earlier house for the gardener. Um, were these examples of great kind of partnerships or collaborations with clients or when have you found those conditions to be kind of optimal? I mean, I think and Will can talk about the house for a gardener, which in a way predates our practice, but was actually again being finished as we kind of put together to work together because Will and Susan did that. And um, and as for the musician, came uh, that Steve Larkin, who came to work in our office, the musician and his friends were the clients for it. Um, and he actually had gone away on tour with somebody else, so we started into the project. Um, and the interesting thing there was that there was the conversation between the three of us, Will, Steve and I, and also, or Will, Steve and me, and also that there was the Maraid and Dermot as clients, but it was very interesting what there was they had a kind of interest in the architecture and they obviously had an embrace of the place, but their attitude as musicians was to be hugely respectful of the notion that we could do something as architects, which would somehow embrace the idea of music and so on. Mm -hmm. So there were particularly things about sight there, about orientation and I guess I grew up in Donegal as well, so there was a relationship to that in a very mm -hmm. close, I guess, yeah, I mean, quite a close way of sort of sense of just what the weather's like yes. and how one might hold that house down, you know, one's not sort of talking about, you're talking about bearing things, and it was interesting, you know, so all sorts of things about the ground conditions and then the story of music interwoven into that, um, and I think we were all thinking about all sorts of things about ground, about ceiling, about how one might make roof in an articulate soffit in an articulate way which then actually resonates with the notion of how you might make surfaces which have different acoustic qualities and so mm -hmm. on. it's not engineered in that sense it's much more intuitive with Steve's knowledge of how one might play music of a particular type in those types of spaces so there are in a way it's a lot of it's kind of 
in a way maybe one might say feeling one's way and intuitive but you're referring to even spaces which you know kitchen spaces and so on which are the spaces of music so the model that you're looking at carry an awful lot of information in them mm-hmm. that in a way you could never unpick by analyzing anyway do you know that in a way that the models are so complex in the things that they embody i'm probably digressing from no because the question of collaboration yes. yeah that yeah, in a way one's talking about synthesis in the sense yeah exactly and you are talking there is this talk about you know things and then that the sort of the conversation about things and that things carry an awful lot more in them than people you know, in a sense, vernacular models, give, mm. they're not just typological, they carry way more in them than people give them credit for, and they get reduced to planned patterns. And I think we, actually, the three of us, were having this conversation, which was about actually the tectonic of those types of spaces, mm. and that tectonic, and then the nature of spaces ramifying from one another and so on. So, yeah. I'm talking too much well, about that, but I think it was there was a there was a there was an int- and particularly yeah kind of overlap. Yeah, there's, and there's also probably a heightened level of collabor- collaboration with the builder in mm. a project like that because you know, it's working in quite a wild environment, so local knowledge extends to you know, the nature of the ground and the fact that this heathland site is actually sand is on a bed of sand and. The foundation for this was a raft, and it needed to be, mm. um, which wasn't necessarily the instinctive route that the engineer would have taken. But the local knowledge fed into mm. that, and it was made on a tight budget, but I, I guess also a focused thing. So that, you know, resources were certainly a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I suppose, there are a number of strands that led to it being a particular kind of work of collaboration that was mm. um, then became a stepping stone to other And do other the realisation or the execution of these projects, do they effectively become collaborations of the contractors or the, the crafts people in a sense? There is that feeling about oh, yeah. work. And we, 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 we would hope so. And I know we've like, probably... Uh, we would have probably lost work on occasions where people sort of say, you don't look like the type of people who beat the contractor up. You know? mm. And actually, we far prefer to be having a conversation with the contractor. And we might be very dogged, actually, and insistent about things being particular ways, but we also know where one might see an opportunity. And also, I mean, actually, it's funny, because people think you couldn't build things in places like Donegal to that level of tolerance or precision and stuff but there are so many people who have so many different skills and often actually they're kind of touching on all sorts because like we were in Donegal the other day starting another project and you're talking to the builder with whom I worked this goes back again to where we started collaborating but at the very start of my practice and as a independently and again we were working slightly together and we went to visit this projects where I'd extended a house and so I'm working with the same carpenter again but it turns out Liam who's a carpenter and I remember him as being a good carpenter in the conversation and he'd have things done ahead of me because I wouldn't have the drawings done but he'd have intuited <laughs> what it was because he would get you know what I mean there was this mm-hmm. conversation about tradition but then we we're talking to him the other day and we we're actually looking at aggregate for a concrete mix for similar to the house musicians where one's making a 
plinth or something that nests, a form which nests in the ground, off which we'll build. And we were looking at the aggregate and we were looking at seashells and sand and different things. And then he was talking about how do you want to sandblast it? But he was talking about, so then it suddenly turns out about, he's talking about panel beating and fixing cars. And if you were fixing a car, you'd only sandblast it this much or that. So I guess the thing is, if you're talking to builders, I think contractors and builders maybe one needs to make the distinction between mm -hmm. them because the thing of capital and a contractor taking on all the risk and having to make sure that he doesn't lose his shirt on that or her shirt but that then there's this other conversation which is happening with people who are often actually making the thing and if you yeah. have that conversation with those people who may be the contractor as well in this case it is then you get into this discussion where you realize that most people you're talking to they like building and they like yeah. building when it's an opportunity to do it in yeah. way. so I guess that's a long answer but it goes around you know in a way those conversations are really important that they happen and one makes time and I think for them. In, in that kind of situation also there's a level of improvisation mm -hmm. which comes out of uh, working in that kind of place where I mean, there isn't the whole infrastructure of Builders, providers, and uh, or tradesmen readily available, yeah. and so, like in that instance, for example, the builder um, does groundworks, and he's a carpenter, but he also sandblasts and does panel beating. So one, you know, there's an there's an awful lot of accumulated knowledge there from different trades that you wouldn't necessarily associate with. Gathered under one mantle, yeah. I mean, interesting that you talk about <coughs> vernacular and how everything, in a sense, in, in some places like Donegal, for example, going back to that, we visited last week with some of our secondary students, the Wheeled and Dan and Open Air Museum, I don't know if you know it, outside Chichester, mm. where they've reconstructed lots of rural vernacular mm. buildings from villages and farm mm -hmm. houses mm -hmm. and so on uh, from the 1400s, 1500s onwards. And I think more than anything else, it was a glorious day with beautiful autumn sunshine and a beautiful landscape, so very striking. But we were really sharply reminded again of the joy to be gleaned from substance and weight in construction and in building forms and spaces. And I think looking at your body of work, that's something that kind of resonates too, that rather than this kind of current obsession maybe often with the filigree or fine or uh, very exposed and illuminated spaces that can be created um, or Ishigami-esque ambitions to make structure almost disappear or dissolve completely that you do the opposite and that you actually really enjoy the substantial connections and enjoy the kind of heavy rhythms and frequent frames and so on. Mm. And I mean and I think that observation, you know, in a way, the places where we forge some of our work, you know, well, you know, I would be, when, again, doing small things for family. You know, my father would take me out and say, see, see that roof there? That blew off last. You know, so it's not, in some ways, you are saying, you know, like, actually the first roof, again, as Dina, you were talking about this, first roof I put on this corrugated iron roof on a stone shed that we built in ended up in the neighbor's garden fairly shortly afterwards and need to look at it back to us where after it's always had ropes over the top of it and stones hanging way down but that sense of so it's not about making necessarily a kind of uh, fetishizing of weight but it is often a thing of saying well actually 
it's okay for that to be that weight. And then there are interesting things, because we're talking about this again with a small project, where sometimes with mass, again, you're talking about, well, actually that weight will counteract that thing spreading, so we don't need to tie that, we just tie it down. Or, you know, there mm-hmm. actually, I, I think we are interested in that game of kind of balance of forces, and that can become an interesting conversation. Like, as an engineer, we've worked a lot with Liam Kyo, who, with whom one can have the conversation about, well, actually, you know, often it comes back that, well, no, you can't do that, but one can at least have the conversation and say, well, and, you know, in principle and practice, that ought to work. Um, and then just but the, the weight thing I mean I guess we've made lighter things and we would be aware that say in Dublin in a back garden I mean this is the other thing about vernaculars and so on that you know the east coast in Dublin in a back garden facing east is not you know is, is, is climatically and in terms of conditions is just totally divorced from trying to do something yeah uh, exactly <laughs> they're just not so so it's interesting because people talk about vernaculars in an irish sense and actually the gradation of those things and it's not just it can be typological from cultural things imported into fermanagh or whatever but i guess for us i think you're thinking about well actually what's the aspect here what's the exposure mm-hmm. I, I, we're always trying, i mean we are always trying to read that so we can do things that are much more delicate, in a sense, in another context. Mm-hmm. I remember Peter Salter coming to Dublin once to talk about, and he was showing his furniture carving museum in, in Ali, and he was talking about architects who like to work with light, and, and he was describing his column, where the column is supporting the truss that let the light into the space then became a vehicle for the carving of the... And he was you know, saying, give me the heavy column any time. Yes, there is my opportunity. But I suppose, uh, you know, it isn't just the weight. And I think we're probably more, we're more interested in the articulation of those elements and how they mm-hmm. connect and what bears on what and finding some kind of mm-hmm. expression for that. Mm-hmm. So going back to the process, how do you operate in, in the studio or office, however you like to call it? Do you, do you work through models a lot and test at full scale or is there a sort of layer? Are you representing through drawing? Or? Again, it probably mutates relative to different pressures at different times. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes a project might start with very kind of shorthand sketches actually, usually, I think. At other contexts where there's something very given, one would be drawing at possibly quite a large scale starting a project. And I think it does, it just sometimes varies as to what's to hand. I mean, who's to hand in terms of who's working in the office with us at the time, in terms mm-hmm. of, so that, you know, affects, well, what people's strengths are in terms of how we can work with the people who work with us. And likewise, probably with one another, if, if one is one of us is very busy at something the other may initiate it and that might relate to how again I think it tends to be things to hand I mean we work initially very much I think through sketches on mm-hmm. butter paper really yeah. and, and then probably beginning to make little maquettes sometimes we, we don't probably work a lot in large models um, and possibly could and should more but there's also a lot of 
conversation about things and in a way talks about things seen in the street or seen on a trip or and that might not be an architectural trip that might be I guess that thing of observation that we're always bringing I think back observations to the office or there'd be a lot of I mean postcards come back which are sort of mm -hmm. very clear observations about things and stuff and Feed into the process. Yeah, 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 but it, but there isn't a. I mean, I think there isn't a sort of formula as to how we approach. It's quite quite a fluid kind of process, really. Do you sometimes yeah. start from an idea about a detail and expand from there? Or Absolutely, does yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we do. We physically sit around a table like this, and so the, the and and it's a small it's a small shop. So the four of us there. The moment, everyone's aware of everything else that's going on in the room. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a kind of ready-made vehicle for discussion. And mm -hmm. So I think there's very much a culture of seeing uh, the sketch of an idea on the board opposite, and someone else taking it and you know, working on that, as which may be an accident of time or availability, but mm -hmm. also it's a you know, ultimately, usually, um, one or other of us takes a greater role in the project and sees it through, not always, but um, th that series of uh, decisions isn't always logical, you know, sometimes it's... Non-linear, yeah, exactly. right, and always a collective effort, really. Uh, do, do you have a sort of um, a timetable in the sense where you get together again and review the whole stages or just again that happening in quite a different kind of way <laughs> yeah I mean I think and probably as we grow again in ways we probably will have more of that I mean it's interesting if you're out of the office more even over the last few days just you kind of going well actually that's good because we know what's going on and like Nadine and Owen who work with us at the moment again they've been working with us for a while so there's a kind of they bring different things from places they've worked and so on. So again, this thing of how things work. But I think as as one would have more people, there will be more of the sort of things saying, yeah, let's sit down and talk about who's doing what and when. It can happen very much within, you know what I mean, the, the kind of four of us at the moment in quite a clear way. But, but again, it, it happens really through circumstance. And I suppose the other thing that's interwoven with it is that teaching means that there are sort of other cycles that happen yeah. through the year and so on so our over our our availabilities overlap and then there's the summer where there's a kind of often a push and so so i guess actually work and it maybe would be i mean there's an interesting thing that maybe work should be more seasonal actually where one can bring projects in particular ways at different times it's not the way the world works so you end up having to hop and trot between things and that's yeah. just you know yeah, but yeah. certainly if you're thinking about being sensitive to the land and the landscape and so on, there are certain times of year when it's really not viable to be yeah. doing groundwork for yeah, yeah. in Donegal or something. But, yeah. Um, yeah, and in terms of the, the teaching, uh, I guess what I'm sort of referring to there is almost adopting the, the crit practice back into the office or the sort of review process. How do you approach the design studio? Is it quite a democratic kind of space? Do you... Do you bring a lot of material back from um, the university into into practice, and you know, does it keep it kind of? I think there's a well, 
Certainly, I can speak from recent years. I mean, I used to teach largely in fourth and fifth year, but for a good many years now, I've been teaching in second year, whilst also we've always had thesis groups at master's level. Mm -hmm. And in more recent years, we've taught together a unit in master's level. So I suppose in second year, it is a kind of interesting thing that in some ways I would say I'm learning culturally from the students who are coming in. And there's a kind of interesting exchange that happens. And then, you know, I, I say that just in terms of, in some ways, life or, you know what I mean, what's happening now. I mean, I just, in a sense, no, but in a way it is. It's sort of, well, uh, yeah, what preoccupations are. I suppose you have to become, you do, you do have to actually think about that and, and how people are living, what they are living and how they, how those students who, with whom you're working, how they're seeing the world. Whereas then when you're working with fifth years, they're probably bringing stuff to you architecturally that you're not aware of or you know what I mean we're bringing a set of references that they may not have encountered but they're bringing other references that they've gathered along mm -hmm. the way from other younger peers than us or older peers and you know what I mean so there's there are two there's an interesting spectrum um we heard a nice quote and I badly want well, to correct it but 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 it was um somebody was talking about William Crozier on the radio the yesterday morning when we were going to the old car and I think what they were saying was his it was a very nice quote from Crozier where he had a particular tutor in Glasgow School of Art whom he respected and he respected him because this tutor uh, took him for being for already being the person he wanted to be and I think there's something again with second years that you don't want to be forcing them into some kind of architectural mold but you mm -hmm. want to be both giving them skills but also, I guess, uh, letting them begin to ask what kind of architect. I don't mean, and I don't mean that in a specialising way, but you know, to some degree, why they want to be architects and so on. And at that stage, it's interesting. In second year, people are incredibly uh, fresh and nimble in their minds, even though you know. So, so and, and, and Will has taught third year then, so isn't he? Yeah. Well, there has been a number of years a model in UCD for encouraging staff to work across the years and, and so um, certainly most of the um, part-time staff also would teach in fifth year if they're teaching in second or third year. Um, I've been teaching primarily in third year for quite a number of years and also we have been running a combined second and third year um, until actually quite recently which was pioneered by Michael Pike, who's now teaching fifth year, but um, for, for the first semester of each year, second and third years uh, worked together in, in shared studios. And so that was, that was an interesting time, and I think he took a lot of positives out of it in terms of the ability of students to work with each other and also to share skills, because a huge... Part of that um, is premised on the idea that they teach as much to each other as, as, as they gain from exposure to tutors. So, mm -hmm. um, now that's now slightly devolved in the last two years into separate second and third year strands again for different reasons. But, mm -hmm. uh, it has been instructive, I think, for staff as well as students in a lot of ways. And then in a way, in second year, there have been kind of new introductions where Peter Tanzi 
and then Els can see it and things where they sort of semester which we set around utopia and then Els last year was setting a semester which was working around invisible cities so in a way it's the not the antithesis but it's a testing another thing than the vertical studio where the second years are being brought in sense in the slipstream of the third years who are already schooled and in a way more saying well actually at your stage where you're not overly schooled yes. what do you think about these things and I guess Hugh Campbell sort of was offering that suggestion that maybe all the way to undergraduate degree is not six square meals but where's the where's the semester where you might throw things up in the air yes. so I guess re there's a sort of constant thing of maybe trying to experiment or being I'd say in fairness too prodded by others to say hey you know what about this you know that it doesn't become sort of stultifyingly yeah. preoccupied with a particular set of tutors preoccupied yeah, yeah. Tut particular tutors preoccupations so that's interesting where, where kind of new structures get folded through it and you feels healthy, I think, to, to move and yeah. to change and to keep yeah. it quite fluid or dynamic in a sense. Yeah. Um, well, so the other thing about it is there's quite a high ratio of practitioners to sort of academics. So, very similar here. Um, that's always, and that's always bringing new ideas into the mix. Yeah, it's quite a fertile combination, I think. It's, it's a focus that Kingston has as well, actually, like most mm. of the design studio tutors really are in, are in practice as yeah. well yeah. so their life at the university is coupled with this life in the kind of real or outside world as well which is yeah. a very nice combination I think for students and we definitely yeah we definitely detect this great hunger amongst the student population I think to, to feel and engage with these real world kind of issues and, um, but there's a joy in teaching at the younger years where the kind of connection to the intuition is still very yeah very strong and less maybe laboured in a sense than, yeah um, I mean there's always that fascinating when you, you know, fascination when you go to another school you tend to and it's interesting actually we came uh, again actually because Alice Clancy had won a teaching and learning she did an award for this semester that she'd run last and she put some of the money to that for the people who taught with her to come to London to look at end of year shows and it was interesting because one tends to sort of you know this sort of thing of you know degree show kind of thing but actually I found sort of fascinating the first year work actually in lots of places because in a way there's there's probably an interesting diversity of what different people experiment with as tutors in first year mm -hmm. you know anyway it's interesting and this too anyway so I, I actually was kind of interested in going around I was kind of finding actually oh, that's interesting what's happening there and there not in a sense, what one had set out probably to look at in the first place, or thought one was setting out to look at. But and I taught first year quite a while. It's where I started teaching it. Mm -hmm. Again, with Dominic Stevens and Connor Maloney quite a long time ago. And, and again, Connor and Dominic had actually thrown things up in the air at that stage as well. So I think, yeah, those early year things, and actually those early year things, not maybe codifying things too much, but yes. saying, well, actually, we'll get to the same end or different ends but it is possible to, yeah, Take open those up. pleasure in the process yeah, and exactly. go through it. Yeah. 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 I'm kind of connected to that then, really, maybe come on to talking about the um, Inchicore Model School and congratulations on the dance medal, the fantastic achievement. It's a very beautiful project. I haven't visited it in person yet, but I very much enjoyed the film on the website documenting the life of the school and mm. 
it's a program I think that's close to everyone's heart in a sense and that we all have our own direct experiences of uh, which we can bring to the process of designing. The film captures, I think, very successfully the influence of time on the spaces and how they're altered by their inhabitation during the day or by the arrival and then mm. the departure of the students and families and teachers and so on. Um, and by the changing light and seasons. How did you go about registering these qualities of the site through the particular tree that you seem to so engage with, the relationship with the pavement, that you know, the overhang of the, the wall, the stone? And, and draw them into the conversation so successfully. The film was interesting because it recast certain things that one had thought about initially. Or what well, was a conversation again with mm. Henrietta? But the conversation, there was a conversation at the beginning of the project, and I think even the project came about in a way where one could apply for a project. And we went and visited the school and made an impression, I think, upon the principal because. We were interested in the place, and we were interested in the yeah the con the stories of the place. So, I think quite early on, we actually there was a guy also, and forgive me, I'm forgetting Jim, who had been principal of the boys' school, and he had a lot of local history to do the school and so on. So, in a sense, there was a lot of stuff that we walked into, which was there, and then there were site conditions of way leaves and so on, you know, where we couldn't build. So the site was already restricted, and then right. there were further restrictions, and then there were the trees. So all of those things make us think in particular ways about it. I mean, yeah, but there was this conversation, and we were bringing things to it. And I would also say that Will had worked on schools, obviously, before, and I think had a very good sense of how the conversation might be made mm -hmm. with the with the um, and you know, there's a really outward-looking principal teacher mm -hmm. who hadn't dealt, dealt with any of this business of architecture before, which is kind of, you know, in a sense, and that, I don't say that in any context anyway, a phenomenally capable person, but who then reciprocally trusted us. That was a really interesting thing, I think. Mm -hmm. But there was also the process, and I would say we'll very carefully always at meetings with the board and principal, describing the same drawings again, carefully. Yeah methodically so actually and with the models there was a process of model and so on I'm talking about process in a way but we all there was a very very big brief really that we had to get onto that site as well and the department had all the other challenge was the department had said that the school couldn't have a general purpose hall which is just standardly 20 by 10 square meters and that they'd have to use one of the spaces in the school unless the architects appointed could figure out a way of doing it which we then it was a challenge so there's right. a kind of add-on to the brief, okay. that large space. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I guess they say that constraints are always a creative opportunity, but uh, in this situation, I think they definitely were. I mean, we had a, an instinct about that part of the site and those trees, and that they could be a huge part of the making of the space of the classrooms. Mm -hmm. In a way that made a lot of decisions for us mm -hmm. at an early stage and um, a lot of the subsequent process was about fine-tuning classrooms that could really enjoy being up in the trees mm -hmm. and trying to hang on to that. And Wonderful aspects from some of the windows. Mm. Yeah, I think it is something that the kids really appreciate. 
I think just because there's nothing when you said talk about the thing that the classroom's hanging over the wall and if you drop a plumb belt from that corner, you know, it ba- it barely breaches the property line or you know and, yeah. and, and at the other end the corner virtually kisses the fascia or the you know, the, the sheet coming down, the gable the, you know. And actually the project started out as a f- three stories of paired classrooms with common space between above and actually anxiety from planning forced us to bring it down a story so to unpack two of the classrooms and add them so that it becomes three classrooms long so there's a kind of interesting thing of just um, but what I was going to say about that was that I think there is an interesting thing in terms of say architects probably working in a world where you're working at the fine grain of something domestic and that that scale is utterly translatable to a larger scale of project but what I think brings with it is probably that thing where you're working into existing conditions lots of times with domestic work so you're actually sort of saying can we get it here without wedging do you know what I mean mm-hmm. so there's a sort of so I think that thing of saying well actually well actually we can be we can stretch it from here to here so mm-hmm. there's a sort of I, I actually think that's an interesting thing in terms of lots of people's practice that when one's working at a certain scale of operation, that can translate, and I think it's missed, probably, in terms of maybe society loses out on that capacity where architects who can work at a, a certain grain can also work at the next grain, and actually that that gets lost by the step in scale to a much more commercial scale of practice and so on. Yeah, that you can import a lot of the, the logic and thinking and methodology. They all sense, scale, yeah. you know, and you can draw a piece of furniture and you do and you know, all of the detail in that furniture, you know, in a way is in a plan of a building. Mm-hmm. Those things scale utterly. I think, they, I think they absolutely do, but I think the care that comes from looking in closely at things can also scale. And I don't know that it... I think sometimes what happens is when you're looking through the other end of the telescope, it doesn't scale down. Um which is probably a loss in the sense that yes. so there's a sort of have you found that the project on occupation has altered at all or has it gone on has it taken on its new next stage of life exactly as you anticipated or is there an ongoing negotiation in the sense about how yeah. one occupies well there is in this i mean in this project there are two very different kinds of spaces and there's a there's, a, there's quite an old building and there's a new mm-hmm. building and both have classrooms in them so there's there's already a kind of um, duality, I suppose, set up there in terms of the kind of accommodation that this place offers as classroom, so home from home. Yeah. And that's... Uh, so they do respond to that. And um, so in, in the life of the school, the old building is the stone building and the new building is the treehouse. And, that's, uh-huh. and they, that's how they talk about the place. And it's... Uh, whether it sort of actively affects how they use the different the old and new classrooms, I'm not sure. Um, they have different qualities, certainly. I mean, when we first moved into the old refurbished classrooms, and it was a phase project, so the new part opened first, mm-hmm. and the students decanted and then conservation works were done and we took out concrete floors in the old building and put back old put back sorry suspended timber floors at ground level um, in order to allow it to breathe 
So we found old pitch pine and on the first days before the furniture arrived, the, the youngest kids who occupy the old building were sitting in circles on the floor. Oh, and nice. <laughs> just, they connected and I felt like in their element. Yeah. And it's interesting too because there's sort of the... No, I, the, well, I think there is actually an embrace of the spirit of what's been done because, again, I guess we tapped into the history of the school and uh, people understand that we took out all of these uh, accretions. Which weren't noble accretions, they were just things that were mm-hmm. totally clogging the place and so on. And, but then that the, where the courtyard was, which becomes this, you know, in a way that the new school is placed upon the general purpose hall, but actually having found a space for that general purpose hall as the kind of root of the new classrooms, a small footprint underneath. But that released the courtyard space potentially in the old school. And it is interesting because the old school, that court place, we also, it's an inside-outside space. We didn't know whether it would be, maybe would it be open to the air. It's got south-facing clear-story windows looking up into the treetops. But it's possibly a very interesting space in that it, it means there are no corridors, well, virtually no corridors, because the classrooms really open off that now. But it's also interesting because it's a kind of space through which, what we've seen in the film, the kids troop through. There's a kind of longer scene of that, of them endlessly yeah, fighting. Yeah. But also it's a space into which actually one-on-one teaching happens. So right. it's not like you go to a cosy, cubby space, necessarily. You just yeah. go out there. And our three students go out with yeah. a... Uh, special needs assistance or, or, or actually any teaching assistant. So that it's quite interesting about the scales of space, but if they're kind of free for use and it's that sort of winning space out of things. And I think the other thing I think is really interesting at the moment is I think it's probably adopted now, but at the time the Department of Education was piloting this Ashter programme, which is much more active in terms of how learning pupils happens. happen okay. or yeah, learning happens and how students or infants really work in the classroom so it's amazing they're much more standing up they're much more working on the walls and 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 i think primary school teachers are also very interesting in that they the way they're trained there is training there's thought of training about spatial all sorts of things so i find that kind of fascinating both i suppose watching our own kids going through this changing thing and the degree to which primary school teachers have really adopted it and will tell you, say, you know, what we're doing this week is, and actually, you know, so there's a very, it's quite an active, and I think that active use is an interesting thing. I don't know whether necessarily the spaces would have been embraced in the same way by all, some teachers mm-hmm. would have, but, but, but by all 10 years ago, but it's quite interesting now, all mm-hmm. of these quite young t- teachers mixed in with very experienced teachers, but they're all working yeah in a way with the spaces that they have in in a creative way actually yeah. so it doesn't seem to us like i mean we yeah did that filter into the briefing or was that really gleaned from your own no, i mean i would say the briefing was the briefing was bold right <laughs> no it was isn't that right it was a schedule of areas right. but then the briefing did become this conversation with right. the man jim who had been the historically the principal of the boys' school, and then when they were amalgamated, Terry McCarthy became the principal overall. We'd rich conversations with people who were on the board who'd gone to the school and so on as well. So there was a sort of, um, and then even things about materials and the identification with the railway works and sort of history of Inchicore. And in a way, one's only hanging things on those stories, but it does mean that there's an exchange about things 
is kind of common. You know what I mean? Common yeah. thing. Like actually, so one wasn't talking. I think we weren't talking in abstractions. We were talking about these are the sort of things we're thinking about. So, yeah. yeah. Those stories or tales that you managed to weave through the project. So I, you know, picked them up elsewhere, like the Himalayan cedars used in Rathfarn cut from the avenues trees. Mm-hmm. Um, are these? Threads that you actively seek out, or do you invest? You must invest quite heavily in the sort of historical research, or in, in the conversations really that bring these to light early on the projects. I don't. I actually, to be honest with you, I don't know how much. I think they come along in stages, and I think, you know, like I think it would be like lots of no. I I and actually it would be disingenuous to say that when you look at say our description of things, and I think one should unpack this. A lot of people present projects as if all of these inspirations were and that's why I hesitate to use the word conception you know as if these things were all there at conception mm. one finds things post hoc like we wanted to work with the trees we found a Kinsella poem about the trees halfway through the project you know the project was underway but then you kind of go yeah well <laughs> somebody's been here already yes <laughs> and that's you 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 adopt and, and in a way the trees again that wasn't our idea you know, we were building the building around the trees. The trees had to come down, it turned out, when we were on site. So, and I think it's interesting. I guess one constructs stories about that. But actually, I would try not to in a way that, again, it's contingent. These things come along and you embrace them. Yes. And you embrace them with clients if they will embrace them too, I think. Is that right? And I might yeah. say, well, I think. It's right. So the historic research, in a way, continues. Uh-huh. all the way through a project I think you know it's not a kind of um, we did the sort of conservation analysis and then yeah. no yeah. stuff keeps turning up I think isn't that right isn't that right in a way I mean in Rathfarn the use of the trees on the site initially certainly we would have resisted it just because it happened very late in the day we already had a builder on the site mm. and everything we had learned sort of to that point so don't go <laughs> okay at that point in a project you're going to lead to you know there's going to be problems because there's going to be claims and so on so and the, there were a whole series of conditions that came together um there to that you know ultimately allowed that to happen one of which was again the builder being someone who was not claims conscious and right. open-minded and okay maybe he had also reasons it suited him to embrace trees as well in terms of um, <laughs> but on the other hand we realized at the same time this was a kind of hugely attractive proposition lovely opportunity yeah and these things don't come every day and um, so it was a combination of a, a client who was um, willing and eager and uh, a contractor was amenable mm-hmm. and probably our own slightly foolhardy romantic notions um, and uh, preparedness I suppose to do the legwork as well because to make it happen now. Um, what sounds like uh, something that makes economic sense in one way certainly isn't and it's, it does end up having cost implications and mm-hmm. time implications and luckily the project was able to absorb those but in a way and I mean this is sort of I mean I'd say go beyond the thing of saying the client being 
willing, but actually Selena and Colin willing, or Selena willing us to do it, and Colin saying, yeah, if you can. And then I would say also Will's kind of clear-minded thing of making a cut list, which described every stick in the building, which is the builder's. Because the builder was quite relieved to be relieved of that. It's yeah. one of you guys are supplying the trees. So the and then there were a number of actors who came together. I mean, there was a sort of joiner across the wall who's maverick character who moved there to that fringe of the city for a reason. So some of those things coalesce. But really, it was Selena's courage, you know, to say and candor to say, I know it. You know, it might be. But you could say it more expensive, but and I know in, in a kind of current, again, it's back to that thing of, you know, capital and things tied up in different types of supply chains. And I do think just say it's sort of the sense of testing things and research for everybody. There's a kind of value you, okay, you know, because of the way things are, that it costs to get them timber milled and so on. So it's saving, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you took that as research of the thing, well, actually, you know, that this avenue from 150 years ago planted at the same time with kind of seeds brought back by, you know, people associated with botanic gardens and plant hunting and so on, and, and all tied up with a kind of Victorian mm. world, and then actually that those things get wound back into things. I guess there are lots of interesting things about supply chains and what one can grow, and I, I actually that to track back. That relates to the way Selene and Colin introduced the overall project to us originally, which was about how do you do things in this place, in this uh, piece of in this agricultural landscape on the edge of the city, mm-hmm. which they were committed to, you know, between sheep breeding and all of these things. So it's part of, you know what I mean, it's not just a whim, it's part of an idea about how a place might work and so on. And, and as a consequence, you know, a particular sawmiller gets to do the thing. So I guess that, you know, maybe it does make space. It's a bit like when you're talking about, well, if, if people who practiced when they were teaching us explored ways of practice, I guess there's a sort of imperative on us to explore those ways of practice or other, you know, you know what I mean, other ways of practice when those opportunities comes up. And I think it's interesting that sometimes clients don't get sufficient credit for their, even in modest and what would be regarded as private or domestic jobs, actually in sometimes their kind of, I think the thing that we need to acknowledge in terms of public thinking, it might be just work which is about domestic accommodation, but somebody's being public-minded in a way when they're saying, well, where does that material come from? And if I, if I put the resources into using that, then that's not wasted. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of cascade of materials in that world. I think that's an interesting thing, and I think it's an interesting thing with people who embark on projects, which may be regarded as domestic or private, but who embark on projects with, and then and then there's a sort of somewhat outward-looking thing. There is, yeah, in a way. And, it, you know, anyway, that's those are interesting conversations, I think, and I don't think people get sufficient acknowledgement, maybe, for that um, broader scope and I don't mean it just architecturally I mean it environmentally I think in lots of ways yeah. fostering um, it's back to the collaboration thing really yeah. that all these forces at play yeah. together make for a great outcome in the end and yeah. nearly wrap it up I was going to also just briefly ask you about the direction the, the practice is taking you've a range of um, 
competitions as well as school for more substantial kind of um, projects, arts mm. centres and so on. Are competitions something that you're quite focused on or is bigger work in the public domain kind of a direction you would like to take the practice? Or? Well, certainly I think we're open to thinking hard about how we operate in the future. Mm -hmm. We're probably in some way, easy game in that rough farm thing in terms of you know wanting to do it a different way or being open to doing it a different way and working with four contractors instead of one. And you know, probably we are would be design builders. Mm. Um, we haven't really either had the courage or the probably capital as well to, 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 to actually take the plunge. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or maybe we've just been kept busy with other things. But certainly other, other models of operating would be appealing, taking the leaf out of Studio Mumbai's book or people you know, people who work in different ways um, really um, get their hands dirty. Competitions we don't probably do enough of. Every time we do one, we, we really enjoy it and we, I think we get a lot out of it. It's obviously a huge draw on resources. Um, so there's a limit to how many one can take on. We probably should be more open to, or more actively pursuing the right ones to do and not just the obvious ones that come up. Oh, it is fascinating because you sort of go, oh, <laughs> you're in the middle of a competition. We haven't done many of late and that's to do with resources, but you in the middle of a competition and you're going, why have we done this? And then you keep going and you go, oh yeah. That's because we're interested in that. And you, it is this amazing rehearsal of things where you will do a competition, say, like the secondary school competition, where, you know, you're dealing with it. Again, fast, brief, but you actually are putting together this whole thing in a competition. Single. Suddenly it's part of your, it's like, actually, it's, it's in a way, it's that you, you are like a student, you know, you're doing this, and by doing so, you're learning how these things go together. So mm. you might be placed in the competition or you might not. But in a sense, it is a way to work and, and actually to demonstrate to that. Because we've all done these things and we've all done mm -hmm. these things through our training and so on. But some ways, actually, competitions probably do offer a way of at least testing and thinking about oh, those things. And hopefully, I think maybe if, if one maybe begins to figure out the right ones to do in the right mm -hmm. place at the right time. And then there's this other thing I think that we are interested in. How does one maybe find another way of doing a project um, where, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's directly, it's not design build necessarily in the contractual sense, but somehow contracting to make something oneself almost with other people who you could bring in to do these things and actually sticking one's neck out and doing that. And I, I think it's just another aspect of practice is this thing about and it would be preoccupation, but, but say going back to the trees and to Braden, I think thinking about up and down stream of what one is doing, you know, in terms of if I, like I think those things, if you use particular materials or do things in particular ways, does that begin to create a culture or even a, I mean, in a way, at a bigger way, people would talk about, a large car company would talk about seeding the thing of people using electric cars, I'm not saying tiny practice like ours is going to have but in, in small ways if you say if we use those things then it begins to become a part of the culture mm -hmm. and there are things that happen up and downstream from that we don't
going to be a critical mass to do that. But I still think there are interesting things that if you kind of open those doors, builders respond, builders become, you know, so there's a, mm-hmm. I don't know, does it, it would be interesting if one could find ways to fund that actually, because it doesn't get funded as research. In a way, private clients fund that as research and nobody acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. So I think there are interesting things. How do you find funding that projects do test things and work them out, you know, that in a way that there mm-hmm. is this sort of research and development through through, in quite an applied way through yeah. practice. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, but that's a matter of how do you find the resources to do that mm-hmm. or... Well, exactly, and I think there are those things, and I think there Mm. might be things like that in housing that one should be thinking about. Mm. In terms of having more adept in our solutions. Yes, and also how do how do practices like ours, and there are many of us, become uh, part of the kind of general capacity of providing infrastructure and uh, social infrastructure and housing infrastructure and all of these things, Mm -hmm. all, all of which we can contribute or to which we can contribute not sure how but I, I know I know how but I don't know how you enable this methodology quite an optimistic note to, to end on yeah. quite an interesting area we always like to ask um, at this point what words of advice you might offer to our students many of whom are busily working towards crits around the building and the campus um, as a last question well, it's going to be in a school of art. I don't know how much interaction I was here between art and architecture, but it seems like a kind of hugely positive environment. Working with the other disciplines, I'd say, is something that could happen here and be really strong. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it does already, but uh, it seems to be maybe the biggest difference from the kind mm-hmm. of environment we teach in. Yeah, like that workshop seems really yeah. highly charged and it reminds me in the sense, I mean, actually, it, I mean, it's funny how your senses and it's sound and smell, but actually different material, but the sound of all the extract made me think of being on a mill floor as a kid, you know, yeah. so it's that level of Energy. people are, at de- at, you know, so that thing where you walk through the mill, there are people doing stuff all around you. And there's a kind of, that's an interesting kind of productive intensity. I mean, I mean, I, and I suppose I was, who was an engineer last year actually, who didn't make a comment about observation. And I suppose I would always try to encourage students to, yes, there's studio and put that sort of observation of the world in a way and looking at things and wondering why is that that way and being able to kind of learn to read environments. So a sort of observation and curiosity. I think that's something that not to let that be extinguished by orthodoxies, mm-hmm. say, of education. Uh, on the one hand, if you have it already, and if it's something you want to develop, to be bold about that and go and do so. So I think there's a world outside that I... And it's just about wonder, in a way, and that, that, that people don't lose that, and, if, and that they constantly cultivate that curiosity. An observation, yeah. Yeah, great. That's a lovely ending. Well, thank you very much for contributing for the conversation. And I'm aware that we have to deliver you shortly downstairs to the lecture theatre. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. 
In our next episode, we'll be joined by Professor Beata Holmabach of AHO in Oslo and Mante Kula Architects also in Oslo. And I hope you join us then. In the meantime, I'd like to thank Aoife Donnelly for doing such a great job with the interview with Marks and Will. Uh, Laura Evans, who's been helping put together this series of talks and podcasts and other things from Register. And Madoka Ellis, who's been helping out with editing and sound quality in these podcasts. Thank you very much, all.